Psalm 110 is a well-known uh, messianic psalm, meaning it's a psalm that points forward to the Messiah, and we'll talk about that uh, this afternoon. So Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So far from Psalm 110, if you are paying attention to the pronouns in that psalm, you'll be helped by it. Otherwise, uh, when we get to the sermon, turn back to it and and, uh, pay close attention there. Uh, Psalm... uh, Turning to our next uh, scripture reading, it is Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and we'll read verses 57 through 67. Through 68, that is. So beginning in verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So far from Matthew 26, let's turn also to Matthew 27, just a few verses later, verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now finally, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 
1 John 2, and we'll read verses 18 through 29. The common thread in all of these texts is the way that Scripture speaks of the Christ and, and who the Christ is and what that means. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge." I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him." And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. So far, the reading of the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 110, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of Christian faith and Christian doctrine, and we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 12. So we'll read that Lord's Day. Our focus will be on the first half, but we will also uh, read the, the whole Lord's Day. Lord's Day 12. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in His anointing, so that I may as prophet confess His name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. (laughs) 
Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this afternoon we have the opportunity to take a brief hiatus from our, our usual pace as we're working through the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to spend several weeks on this Lord's Day looking at this, this name of Christ and working out from that what does it mean first for Jesus to be Christ and second for us to be Christians. Uh, so, it's essentially a four-week series on Christian discipleship, which uh, was helpful for me to work out on my own, uh, working with the Word of God, and I trust will also be a blessing to you as we think about what it means for us to be Christians. Uh, now, the rationale for that approach is actually very straightforward. Uh, here in the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ. And when we say that, what we're doing is we're saying something about the identity of Jesus, uh, about who we believe Jesus to be. Uh, the name Christ, as many of you will know, is, is not actually a name at all. It's a title. Uh, it's a specific title uh, that is loaded with meaning, uh, which we'll get into in just a moment. And the moment that we speak of Jesus as the Christ, we call him that, the moment we do that, we identify ourselves as well. We identify ourselves as his disciples. Uh, his disciples are those who recognize him to be the Christ. Uh, and what it means, this is our big principle for this, this whole series, what it means to be a Christian depends entirely on what it means for Jesus to be Christ. If you're confessing him to be Christ, what you mean by that determines what it means for you to be a Christian. Uh, so for us to understand what it means to be a Christian today, also in our time, in our culture, we need to first ask the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And then the follow-up question will be, if that's who he is, what then does it mean for us to be his followers, uh, his disciples? Now these are very simple questions, but they are very important questions, questions that in fact shape the, the course of the Christian life. And they're not questions we should assume that we know the answer to. Yes, we've studied the Word of God, and we have uh, much understanding within this church, and yet the way we think about Christ can very quickly veer off course or off emphasis from who Scripture says the Christ is. Now, as we answer those two questions, who's, who, what does it mean for Jesus to be Christ? And then what does it mean for me to be a Christian? Uh, there's a third question we also want to answer, uh, and that is, what does it mean for me as a Christian to not only be a follower of Christ, but to also share in His anointing as Christ? Uh, to be, in a sense, uh, united to Christ and be a Christ myself, and you also yourself. Uh, we'll work that out in detail in a moment, uh, but for now we just want to recognize this principle that those who are the followers of Christ not only follow Him, but also share in His anointing. They themselves are Christ's, uh, in the plural, uh, with Him. Uh, so those are the three questions we want to work through today and for the next couple of weeks. What does it mean for Jesus to be Christ? What does it mean for me to follow Him as Christ? And what does it mean for me to share in His anointing as Christ? 
Uh, for this afternoon, I want to take the time we have and focus primarily on that first question. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Uh, and, and specifically, what is the, the biblical meaning of that name, Christ? It's a name that is very much rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and it simply means the Anointed One. Uh, in Hebrew, the word is Messiah, uh, which, which in the Hebrew literally means anointed. And the Greek word means the same, the Greek word Christos. Uh, now, in the Old Testament, there were, there were three different kinds of people that would receive that name Messiah or Anointed One. They were always either prophets, priests, or kings. And those were the only offices that had that special title of Anointed Ones, for which there was a ritual of anointing. Uh, so, uh, you think of Aaron, for example, uh, Aaron, the brother of Moses, when he was anointed as the high priest in Leviticus 8, the whole congregation was assembled there at the entrance of, of the tabernacle. Aaron was clothed in, in special uh, priestly robes, and, and then he was anointed with oil. Oil was literally uh, poured over his head, and, and in that way, that, that symbolized his special, sacred anointing. Uh, the oil itself was a symbol for the Spirit of God. Uh, wherever you find oil in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a symbol for the Spirit of God. And so this, this practice of anointing was essentially a visible way of saying, the Spirit of God has come upon this person and set this person apart for their, their sacred task. Uh, then after Israel entered the land of Canaan, uh, they chose a king. And that king, that Saul, was also anointed for his calling. First uh, Samuel 10 describes the anointing of King Saul by the prophet Samuel. Uh, and, and if you read the history of First and Second Samuel, you get a sense of how important this anointing was, it's one of the big themes of, of those two books, uh, that, that one book divided in two, First and Second Samuel, is how important it is for, for Saul or the king to be anointed. Uh, even though Saul turned out to be an evil king and, and spent the last part of his life persecuting David, uh, fighting against God, uh, yet David consistently refused to kill him, even when he had opportunity, uh, because in his words, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. See how, how important it was that this person's been anointed by God, and I therefore cannot touch him. It was a sacred office and calling. And finally, we also read of prophets, prophets who were anointed. Now, not all of the prophets were anointed with oil. Not all of them underwent that, that special ceremony. But we do know that it was, like the priests and like the kings, a sacred office uh, that often was accompanied or, or, or set apart by uh, this practice of anointing. Uh, so you might think of 1 Kings 19 where God speaks to Elijah and commands him to anoint Elisha as the prophet in his place. Uh, so you have these, these three sacred offices, and they're set apart by, by this ritual of anointing. What then does it mean when we call Jesus the anointed one, uh, as, as these offices were anointed? 
Well, to answer that question, we need to also recognize that from the beginning of Israel's history, before anyone had been anointed, God also began to speak of someone who would come to be the fulfillment of all three of those offices, to do what none of them, not the prophets, not the priests, not the kings, were able to do. Uh, All three of those offices of prophet, priest, and king were filled by weak, sinful, imperfect men. And as you read the, old, the history of the Old Testament, as we've been doing in our morning service, working through kings, uh, you, you watch the nation of Israel just, just crumbling in its idolatry, in its sinfulness, and, until it finally reaches the point where it's taken away into exile. And it becomes painfully obvious over those centuries as we watch that process unfold that that the prophets just aren't able to stop it. And the kings aren't able to, to lead Israel back into righteousness. And the priests themselves are corrupt, or as we saw this morning, uh, ineffective even in, in, in doing the repairs of the temple. Uh, and, and so the, none of them are able to fulfill what their calling was, was designed to do. Uh, So already from the beginning of Israel's history, the scriptures point forward through those roles, through those offices, ultimately to uh, this, this new anointed one. Now here's the interesting thing. Some of those texts speak about this person as a prophet. So Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and to him you shall listen. Now, early on, uh, we have records of this even before the time of Christ. Early on, the Jews saw this as a reference to the Messiah. And they're, they're waiting for the Messiah, who they call a prophet. Uh, but other texts talk about him like a priest. Uh, we read from Psalm 110, verse 4 earlier, uh, which, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This too, from early on, was seen as a messianic prophecy, something pointing to that Christ. And still other texts talk about him like a king. Uh, A really well-known one to us is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, that's a kingly thing, shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It goes on to say, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The Jews recognized from very early on, the Messiah is also a king. He's the son of David, the fulfillment of God's promises to David, and he will reign on David's throne. So the whole of the Old Testament points forward to this this Messiah, this anointed one who is to come. Some texts talking about him as a prophet, others as a priest, others as a king. Uh, Interestingly, because of this, uh, by the time of Jesus, there was actually a difference of opinion among the Jews of Jesus' day as to whether there was going to be one Messiah or two Messiahs, or even, as some believed, there might even be three different Messiahs. Uh, Because for many of them, these, these are incompatible roles. You cannot be, under Israel's constitution, a, a priest and a king at the same time. 
Uh, and yet, you have these texts that speak of the Messiah as both and as all three. Uh, so, that, so there were some Jews that saw just one Messiah and were waiting for one, some that waited for two, some that even were waiting for three. Uh, you, might, you might also think of uh, Isaiah 61. It speaks of, of this prophet who's doing a lot more than a prophet does. Uh, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is is someone who's much more than just a prophet. Uh, What's especially significant about that text is Jesus himself preached that text in the Jewish synagogues, uh, in Nazareth. Uh, It it says afterwards, too, that after he had finished reading that text, he he rolled up the scroll, uh, gave it back to the attendant, and and sat down. And that day they they preached sitting down. So, yeah, you have it good here. Uh, I I could be sitting down. Uh, And he sat down, and and everyone had their eyes fixed on him, and he said, Today, this scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus self-identifies as this very Messiah. Here's the first time he's calling himself the Messiah. Uh, So with all of those texts, with with the Old Testament pointing forward to that Messiah, uh, the Jews by Jesus' time had come to accept uh, that that this anointed one uh, was, uh, was, was someone coming to fulfill all three of those roles. Uh, that was certainly the dominant view that there was going to be only one Messiah. The Jews today uh, still are waiting for one Messiah to fulfill all three of those roles. In addition to that, they had also come to understand, this is why we read from, from Matthew 26 and 27, they had also come to understand in some sense that this Messiah, uh, this Messianic figure, was also more than merely human. He's not just a a great prophet, great priest, and great king combined. He's more than than human. He's also divine. Uh, And so he's spoken of as the Son of God. Uh, The Jews in that day uh, customarily spoke of the Messiah as the Son of God. That's not a Christian invention, something that Christians uh, came up with later. Uh, And one of the ways you can see that is even in Jesus' interrogation in Matthew 26, uh, the the high priest asks him, he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, So the Jews had already made that association and appropriately so. Uh, Isaiah 9, uh, we, we just read that a moment ago, calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He's more than just a man. Uh, we saw this also a few weeks ago when we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the, there's no way to escape the fact that the Old Testament, as, as monotheistic as it is, there's only one God, nonetheless speaks of the Messiah in very much God-like terms. Uh, that would be even blasphemous to apply to anyone but God himself. So all that baggage uh, is contained in this word Christ. You think then of the scandal that it was for Christians in Jerusalem to say that Jesus is the Christ. 
They're saying, this is the prophet you've been waiting for. This is the great high priest. It's a threat to the, the, the Jewish priest working in the temple. And this is the king, which was why he was seen as a threat also by, by the Roman Empire. Uh, plus, on top of all of that, he is God. He is the Son of God. Well, that's what we confess in that one simple word in the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. See, there's a lot of baggage attached to that word. Uh, now, I, I want to refrain from, from speaking too much about the individual offices. That's where we're going to go in the next weeks. Uh, but we can hopefully appreciate what a significant confession it is then to call Jesus by this title. Uh, in, in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And, and Peter said, well, some say Elijah, others say a prophet, uh, others say John the Baptist. And the Lord Jesus then asked, and who do you say that I am? Peter said, knowing full well all that this title meant, he said, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see there again the association between Christ and and Son of God. Uh, and, and so also then when Jesus was brought before Pilate, Pilate asked him, uh, this is interesting, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Pilate asks him, are you the King of the Jews? Uh, he automatically associates Christ with also King. Uh, even Pilate, who's not even a Jew, he was an Edomite. Uh, no, excuse me, that, that, that's Herod. Pilate was a Jew, my mistake. Uh, but Pilate asks him, as a Jew, one who knows the Jewish theology, he asks him, are you the king? He knows what the Christ is. Uh, so there, there was this clear mutual understanding among all the Jews of Jesus' day. This is who the Christ is. That's what this title means. It's not just a name. It's a claim and a very controversial claim at that. And brothers and sisters, that's our confession as well. Every time we say Jesus the Christ, uh, that is our confession. And that then working through the logic we, we set up at the beginning of this sermon, that then is what it also means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the prophet, the priest, the king, and indeed the Son of God. Uh, that is what it means before anything else for someone to be called a Christian. That's also the point that John makes in the last of our readings from 1 John 2. Uh, here John is speaking especially about the, the, this figure called the Antichrist. Uh, this is the, the first place in Scripture uh, that this, this term Antichrist uh, is used. Uh, in contemporary evangelical theology, in our, in our modern-day theology, uh, when we think of the Antichrist, most people think of this, this figure who's going to come in the last days, uh, this, this some sort of historical figure. Uh, and, and there certainly have been particular figures who were prominent in history in opposing the Jews, or excuse me, in opposing the, the Christians. Uh, for example, Nero, in the time of the early church, was often called the Antichrist. Uh, and yet here John tells us the Antichrist is not necessarily one particular historical figure. He says anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. 
John, 1 John 2, verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Uh, so he's working with a very, very straightforward definition of Antichrist. You are anti the Christ. You are opposed to Jesus who is the Christ. Whoever rejects him, rejects the one who sent him, and therefore, by definition, is anti-Christ. However, John also emphasizes that those who accept him and receive him become his disciples and are therefore Christians. Well, that then is where we want to take our starting point for the next several weeks. Uh, So the principle, again, is uh, whatever we mean by Christ... That determines what it means for us to be Christians. Or in other words, uh, what you mean when you call Jesus of Nazareth the Christ defines what it means for you personally to be his disciple as the Christ. Uh, Those who believe he's the Christ are his disciples. and, And what they understand by that determines what it means for them to be disciples. Uh, So, just for example, if by by Christ we mean that Jesus is the prophet sent from God, then think about it, what's a Christian? If that's what you mean by Christ, he's the prophet sent by God, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is one who listens to such a prophet, who hears his words, who accepts his message, who believes in him. That's what you do with prophets. Uh, and, and then also he who obeys what the prophet tells him to do. Or if by Christ we mean that Jesus is the high priest given by God, then a Christian uh, is one who knows himself to be redeemed by the sacrifice that priest offers, uh, who confesses his sins to God in the name of that priest, uh, who prays to God on the basis of the work that that priest has done. So he sees him as a priest and relates to God through his priestly work. Uh, And finally, if by Christ we mean that Jesus is the king, the one who was promised by God to sit on the throne of David and rule over heaven and earth, uh, then what's a Christian? Well, a Christian is a loyal servant of that king. A Christian is one who obeys him, and one who labors in his kingdom uh, for his kingdom purposes. It's one who promotes his law, who, who advances his standard of justice and of righteousness. That's what a Christian uh, would be. Uh, so that's kind of our goal for the next several weeks, to take each one of those prophet, priest, and king, and to unpack them, to understand what each of those mean, uh, And then to work out, what then does it mean for us to be disciples of that prophet, that priest, and that king? Uh, And then finally, the last thing, we want to take it even a step further. uh, Because we want to ask not only what does it mean for us to be his disciples, but also what does it mean for us to share in his anointing, to be little Christs uh, with him, as those who belong to him. Uh, this point is, is made explicitly by John in, in the text from, from 1 John 2, 
that we read, uh, where he says, those who receive the Christ also share in his anointing. And so he says in verse 20, you have been anointed with the Holy One, that is the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, you think of the same Spirit that Jesus spoke about from Isaiah 61. Uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me. Uh, John says, you've been anointed with the Holy One, and therefore you all have knowledge. Again in verse 27, the, the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. John's point is, uh, you who believe in Christ are not just His disciples, though you are that, But even more, you belong to Him, and so you too are anointed with the same Spirit with which Jesus was anointed. Uh, Now, in the Old Testament, anointing, as I mentioned, was done with oil. You had oil uh, dumped over your head. We don't do that uh, in the church anymore because we recognize that oil symbolized the Holy Spirit. Then they had the picture. Now we enjoy the reality we who belong to Christ have, been, have had the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. We've been anointed with His power. Uh, so what John is saying is, is our faith and our conviction about the identity of Jesus, that's what makes us Christians, uh, by calling Him the Christ, uh, our, that conviction is a result of something that has happened within us namely the anointing by His Holy Spirit. And if that's true, that means you too are a prophet. You too are a priest, and you too are a king. Uh, We're not just disciples of the Christ. We are anointed together with the Christ. Uh, And this is also what we want to then think about every sermon in the next three weeks. Not just asking the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be a prophet? And what does it mean for me to believe in him and follow him as prophet? But what does it mean for me to be a prophet with him and after him? Uh, And likewise, a priest and likewise, a king. Uh, That said, for this week, I want to just finish on on this uh, word Let us stop and consider our confession, how significant that truly is, that we say that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. That's what sets us apart from modern-day Jews. They still, they believe that the Christ is the fulfillment of all the scriptures, and they're still waiting for him because they missed him. Well, brothers and sisters, Don't miss him. Every time you open your Old Testament, look for Christ on every page of your Bible. Uh, I will never preach as good a sermon as Jesus preached on, on, uh, in, in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. It says he opened up the scriptures and, and it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted in them all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, to the, the effect that his disciples afterwards, reflecting on that, they said, uh, Were not our hearts burning within us as he opened up the scriptures with us? Well, brothers and sisters, let that be the case for you as well. Every time you open your Old Testament, let your hearts see 
the work of Christ there. See them pointing, those scriptures pointing to Christ. And let your hearts burn within you as you you see the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, See him in your Bible every time you open it. Don't let the rejection of the Jews be the cause of your inability to see Christ there. uh, For he certainly is there. Uh, See him in the word of God and then give him the honor, the glory that is due his name, not just as God's anointed one, but as God himself, having come to this earth for your salvation and for the establishing of the kingdom of God, of which you have the great privilege of being a part. Amen. As we reflect on uh, all